Well, today in our series on Romans, we come to a passage of Scripture that many of you probably love very much. Some of you probably consider it to be among your favorite sections of the entire New Testament. Uh, we're looking at Romans chapter 8, and today we're going to be looking at the last part of that, although we need next week as well. But um, we're talking about God's unbreakable chain of loving rescue. We're going to look at three great ideas um, that all things work together for good to them that love God. We're going to say, well, who is that talking about? We're going to talk about how good is good. When we say all things work together for good, how good is that? And then last of all, we want to actually describe something about this unbreakable chain of loving rescue. So what a great uh, text of Scripture. And we start right off reminding you that the text in Romans 8 and chapter 8 is wonderful everywhere, right? But when we come to verse 28, that's pretty special. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. What a great idea that everything is going to work together for good if you love God if you are a saved individual called according to his purpose. And today what we're talking about is so important. As a matter of fact, it is so important that your very sanity might depend on what we're talking about today. This is a really important text of Scripture. All right, for whom do all things work together for good? We know the text says, to those who love God. And by that, do we mean that uh, all saved people have all things work together for good? Are we talking about people who love God more ardently, uh, with more devotion than some other people? And uh, we know that everybody should love God, but not everybody does love God. And so, which is it? All saved people can find that all things work together for good? Or is it just for those who love the Lord more than some other saved people do. And actually, it's both. It's both because all of God's children are going to have an inexpressibly, unimaginably bright future, and that is good. But we also see that there is a degree of good that comes to those who love the Lord with the most devotion. And both of those ideas are important. So when we say all things work together for good, how good? Well, inexpressibly good. Uh, and this is good for all saved people. And last week we showed you these three texts of Scripture that I always love, and they come to my mind whenever I do a funeral message. Uh, from 2 Corinthians 12.2, uh, Paul describes heaven. He says, in his vision of heaven, in his experience of heaven, he heard unspeakable things, inexpressible things. It was just so wonderful. In Ephesians 3.14, Paul says, the love of Christ just passes knowledge. It's, it's unknowable. It's inexpressible. It's unknowable. And the love that you're going to feel in your everlasting future is just beyond imagination. And beyond imagination, of course, is the whole idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I has not seen nor ear heard, neither has it even entered into the imagination of people what the Lord has prepared for them that love him. So you see, this, this idea, you know, all saved people everywhere have this unimaginably bright future prepared for them in eternity. But even though it is inexpressibly good for all believers, notice that there are some differences. It is not equally good for every believer, and it is not maximally good for every believer. Because there are certain degrees of blessing 
that come to those Christians who are not fleshly, to those Christians who obey the Lord and love him most ardently. There is a layer of shame that comes to believers who don't live well. So in 1 John 2, 28, And now little children abide in him, that when he shall appear we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So inexpressibly good for all the saved people. But some people have a layer of shame attached to this when Jesus returns. And you don't want that. So love the Lord with all your heart. The same idea is in 1 Corinthians 3.14 on the subject of loss. So inexpressibly good, but not equally good and not maximally good because some people also experience loss when Jesus returns. In 1 Corinthians 3.14, describing the judgment seat of Christ, if any man's work abide, which he is built thereupon, upon the foundation of Christ, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. Well, he'll still be saved, but he suffers loss. So inexpressibly good, but not maximally good for the people who suffer loss. That is, Christians who are saved, but they don't live for Jesus. They don't really love him as well as they might. So all believers everywhere can take comfort in this verse, Romans 8:28. We know that all these things work together for good. We can all take comfort in that, but the greatest degree of comfort can only be enjoyed by the people who love God well after they become Christians. And so we should always remember when our unpleasant circumstances are set in motion and we all have to go through unpleasant circumstances sometimes. We should all remember to ask ourselves, and was I loving God when these unpleasant circumstances were set in motion? And if the answer is yes, you know, I really was loving God. You can face that unpleasantness with joy because then you know that uh, there is no shame attached to it, no loss attached to it. You're just soldiering on for Jesus. By the way, this is true with a good many things in the Christian life. Not every Christian's life is equally blessed. So, for example, we know that all Christians everywhere have peace with God. But to those who pray with thanksgiving is the peace of God that passes all understanding. And if you would not bring those needs to the Lord in prayer with thanksgiving, then you would not get that special peace of God that passes all understanding. There's a special nearness with God that those people have who draw near to him. So all Christians have nearness to God, but if you draw near to the Lord, he'll draw near to you. So you see, there's a special nearness, a special withness, if we can say that. Uh, Well-pleasingness to God, that you might walk worthy of the Lord and please him well in all things, that you would increase more and more. All the Christians please God, but some Christians please God more than others. Of course, God loves all his people, but he has a special love for cheerful givers. They would, if I don't give cheerfully, will God love me? Yes, but he has a special love for those who give cheerfully. So you see, not equally magnificent or maximally magnificent for every believer. Prayers that accomplish much. Well, prayers are always a good idea, but it's the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man that is especially effective. Uh, enjoyment of a better resurrection. We'll say something about that in just a moment. And enjoyment of a treasured rank in God's kingdom. We'll say something about that also in just a moment. But as you can see, it's not equally good for all Christians everywhere. It is especially good 
for those who have loved the Lord ardently, devotedly in this world. And I hope you will do that. All things work together for good, for God's good. Even the most hideous crimes work together for God's cosmic purposes. It's good for God, but it's not good for the individual who sins. So, for example, we would say the uh, person who sins against God all his life and ends up in hell has not in that case, so uh, interrupted God's plans that there's not good that comes out of it. Charles Spurgeon said, the cries of the people in hell are the bass notes of the grand symphony of the universe. Even that, all things considered, even that is as things should be. But you see, it hasn't worked together for good to the people who are in hell. Worked together for God's good and the cosmic purposes. But not for the people who are in hell. We then learn from this that we should never celebrate our sins. We should never be glad that we have sinned. We should never say, well, it was for the best that I was a drug addict. And now I'm a trophy of God's grace. Don't say such things. It always works out for God's good. For his cosmic purposes, all things considered. But if you make poor choices in life, it doesn't always work out for your good. And you have to be careful how you apply this verse, Romans 8:28. An excellent case study here is Ananias and Sapphira. You know the story in the book of Acts. They were covetous and they lied about what they were giving to the Lord because they wanted applause. Well, as it turns out, the Lord took away their lives. They died right there on the spot in front of God's people. And um, we can say, well, we know that all things work together for good. But did they work together for good for Ananias and Sapphira? Not exactly. They were killed. Their lives were ended suddenly because they had lied. And the deception was going to be a toxin in the church and the Lord didn't want it. And so he took away their lives. So did their sins work together for their good? Well, no. It worked together for God's good and for the church's good, but not for their good. And we should be careful then to say, um, the Lord redeems, which is so great. The Lord overcomes evil with good, which is so great. But these are plan Bs. Redemption is uh, necessary because we have sinned. But we will never be glad. We'll never celebrate that we have sinned. We'll never be glad that our sins put Jesus on the cross. That's not something to celebrate. So you say, well, I'm glad I was a drug addict for all those years because it turns out I'm a trophy of God's grace. Don't be glad that you were a drug addict for all of those years. Be glad for redemption. Be glad for God's grace, for a wonderful plan B for your life. But don't celebrate your sin. All things work together for good, but we don't celebrate our sins. And we should ask ourselves, when the unpleasant circumstances in my life began to come, were they coming when I loved God? And if the answer is no, they were coming because I did not love God very well. Then, you know, this is an opportunity for repentance and not for celebration that we have lived and made those choices as we did. 
Uh, we can never say, I'm so glad I molested a child when I was 25 years old. All things work together for good. I'm so glad I did that. You cannot say such things. You cannot say, I'm so glad I wounded the souls of my spouse and my children when I demanded a divorce. Because all that soul wounding and all that divorce works together for good. Well, it works together for God's good, for his great cosmic purposes in the world. All things considered, it works together for the good of anybody who is redeemed as a plan B, that's good. But we shouldn't say, I am glad that I have sinned. It has worked together for good. God has overcome with uh, evil with good, and we're thankful for that. So here's our recap. All believers everywhere can take huge comfort, wonderful comfort, infinite comfort in Romans 8:28, that all things work together for good to them that love God. That is so great. We should always ask ourselves, when this unpleasant sequence of events began, was I loving God? And if the answer is yes, that makes you feel a lot more comfortable than if the answer is no. Let's talk about how good is good. And also, is there such a thing as better and best? And of course, there is. Inexpressibly good. Again, we showed this slide a few minutes ago. Inexpressibly good unspeakably good, unknowably, unimaginably good. Yes, that's how good it will be for all saved people everywhere, and we love that. But um, we should realize that, again, there are blessings, there are degrees of delight that come to those who love God best, and you want to be among those. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 35, we're talking about the sufferings, of the saints. And in that text, it says that they went through all kinds of persecutions and tortures. And it says, not accepting deliverance. They could have recanted their faith. They could have renounced their faith and avoided the persecutions. But they didn't want to do that. It says, they did not accept deliverance in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. So, how good is good? Well, you know, unimaginably good. But there is also better. There is a better resurrection if you care to reach for it. And these saints in Hebrews chapter 11 decided that they were going to go for that. It's wonderfully good for all believers. I mean, beyond imagination, right? Infinitely good. But then there is better. If you want to serve the Lord with all your love, there will be a better resurrection for you. And I think that's wonderful, too. Better, we read about better in passages like this. Second John chapter 1, verse 8. Uh, Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things which we have worked for, but that we receive a full reward. So you see, not equal. Some people have a full reward, some people don't. Always infinitely good, but also better for some. Maybe better for you if you'll live for Jesus all your life. Revelation 3.11 has exactly the same idea. Hold fast what you have so that no man will take your crown. See, some people will have the crown. Some people will have somebody take away their crown. And you wouldn't like that. So there's good, unimaginably bright for everybody. But then there's also better. Something special. Uh, a, a special connection with God that not just everybody has. And Colossians 2.18 is the third voice in this trio. Let no man defraud you of your reward in a false humility and worshiping of angels. You were so close to having a reward here. 
And then you decided not to love Jesus with all of your mind, and so you've lost your reward. You still go to heaven. You're still saved. It's unimaginably good, and yet you did lose that reward, right? So we should remember that there is unimaginably good for everyone, but there is also more, something better for those who love God all the way. And there's even best. Beyond better, there is, you know, the very, very best. And so in Mark 10, 44, Jesus is talking about serving one another. He says, and whoever of you wishes to be first should be servant of all. So there is also first. Good for everybody. But there's the opportunity for better, a better resurrection. And there's even an opportunity to be among the Lord's very, very best. And you can do that. We know that all these things work together for good to them that love God. And if you'll love God with all your heart, you'll not only get the unimaginably bright, infinitely bright, good, you can even have better or best. And so that's important as well. Now let's talk about this unbreakable chain of God's loving rescue. This is so wonderful. And we read about it here in uh, Romans 8, this time beginning in verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now, we're going to talk more about mm, Calvinism, if you know that term, and what's involved next week. We're not going to get bogged down in that today. But what we see here is a chain, a wonderful chain, a knot of eternity. Uh, We sometimes talk about eternity past and eternity future, but all those terms are really just us trying to deal with very, very hard concepts because there's even such a thing as eternity present. But anyway, in this knot of eternal past, present, and future, we have this chain from eternity past to eternity future, this chain in which God foreknows and then predestinates and then calls And then justifies and then glorifies. Justifies means you are declared righteous. You're saved. Uh, The Lord would say, I I find no fault in you. You're declared righteous. Glorified means radiant. He's going to bring you to the radiant place. And you're going to have a radiant future. That's glorified. Glorified means radiant. And you'll notice here that this chain cannot be broken. Every single person who is justified is going to be radiant. Say, well, what if I mess up? It can't be broken. This is a knot of eternity. From eternity past to eternity future, including eternity present, all in a big knot. And it can't be broken. We call that eternal security. The chain cannot be broken. You see the text there from for no, predestinate, call, justify, glorify. And it raises two questions. First question, is there any hope for me if I'm actually living a lie? In other words, I have a secret sin that I would not like to admit to anybody I know. Then what will become of me if I'm living a lie? That's in the present tense. And the second question is like it. Is there any hope for me If I fall into some kind of gross sin tomorrow, like I really love God today, but what if I fall into some gross sin tomorrow? What will become of me? And this chain, this everlasting knot 
uh, foreknow, predestinate, call, justify, glorify. This, this whole thing answers that question. So question one, what if I'm living a lie? What if right now I'm living badly and I would be mortified for people to know what's happening in my life? What would become of me then? Is there hope for me? And our text says in Romans 8.38, I'm persuaded that neither things present, and you see that's highlighted in yellow, neither things present nor things to come shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, including things present. That's our question. Right now, in the present tense, I am living a lie. I would be mortified for anybody to find out what I am doing in my life right now. Is there still hope for me? And the answer is, nothing present can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We call that eternal security. Nothing you're doing presently can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ. We've seen that phrase, in Christ, often since Romans chapter 6. You cannot be separated from the love of God in Christ by anything you are doing in the present. That's what that text says. Neither things present nor things to come shall be able to separate us from the love of God. So that answers the question in the first place. The second question, is there any reason for hope for me if I fall into gross sin tomorrow, like David did? Is there hope for me then? And again, we go exactly to the same words, but notice the different highlight. I am persuaded that neither things present nor things to come, that's the future. What if tomorrow I fall into gross sin? What will become of me? And the answer is, there is nothing that can happen in times to come that will ever be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because we have this eternal knot from eternity past to eternity future, and the chain is strong and it cannot be broken. Everyone who is justified is glorified, and nobody drops out in between. There are... There are no individuals who get off the gospel chain. If you're justified, you shall be glorified. And that's just as certain as eternity past and eternity future. Eternal security. Follow then the logic, the unbreakable chain of this text. Whom he did foreknow in eternity past and predestinate in eternity past to be conformed to the image of his son. Moreover, he did predestinate and then called and then justified and shall glorify all knotted together in one thought. And I'm persuaded that nothing done in the present and nothing done in times to come can ever separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing you do wrong today, nothing you do wrong tomorrow could possibly fracture that unbreakable chain that comes from eternity past and extends into eternity future. It just can't be done. You cannot have your love in Christ terminated by anything present or anything future. It's locked. And that's what this text says so beautifully. 
we might have questions, and the text raises these questions, like, what if we are suffering the very worst kinds of cruelty and deprivation in our lives? I mean, what if things are really, really going bad for us right now? Doesn't that prove that God has forsaken us, that God is tired of us, that God is letting us go, he's abandoning us? Doesn't that prove that? Because, remember I said, you have to ask yourself, when this unpleasant sequence of events began, was I loving God? And if the answer is yes, you know, I was loving God, then you can feel very good about that. If the answer is, well, I must not. I must not have been loving God very well because look how horrible my life is. Pause. That's not right. Romans 8.35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, those are any hardships. Distress, you would say stress. Persecution, famine, I don't even have enough to eat over here. Nakedness, I don't even have clothes to wear. Or peril or sword, as it is written in Psalm 44. For your sake, Lord, we're killed all the day long. People are killing us. We're killed all the day long. We're counted as sheep for the slaughter. And we have Christian brothers and sisters in various places of the world at this very moment who are in that situation. And throughout Christian history, there has always been that threat on various ones of our Christian brothers and sisters. Well, does that prove? I mean, the Lord must be abandoning us. He he must be sick of us. He must be forsaking us. Look at our lives. Doesn't this prove that something's wrong? And the answer is in the yellow font there. No, it doesn't. And all these things, we are more than conquerors. Not just conquerors. More than conquerors. We're crushing it. Spiritually speaking, we're way ahead here because we've loved God. We're more than conquerors through him that loved us. Verse 32 says, He that did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? He gave us his son on Calvary. Surely God is going to give us everything else. The child whose father steps in front of a hail of bullets to protect him does not now have to worry that his child is going to, uh, that the father is going to poison his child's food or push him off a cliff. He just stepped in front of a hail of bullets for him. I'm sure the father is going to take care of him. He that did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also give us all things? The child whose father gives him the entire estate doesn't now have to wonder if his father's going to loan him a dollar. He's given you the whole thing. Of course, he's going to freely give you every other thing. This is the unbreakable chain of God's love. And we never have to question that. And this text helps answer a most important issue. What if satanic and human accusers and even our own conscience, what if these rise up to accuse us and oftentimes justifiably so, like we deserve to be accused? What if this happens and my most humiliating sins are made public knowledge or just brought up in the courts of heaven. What then? And this is a likely prospect, right? In Revelation 12:10, 10, 
the accuser of our brethren, accuse them before God day and night. So we know that sometimes we have done wrong. I mean, we could be justifiably accused. What will become of us then? We have accusations constantly against us. And some of these we totally deserve. What if I really have been a worthless person in society? Now, we're not even allowed to say such things anymore. But you know, the term good for nothing comes from Jesus. When Jesus was talking about being the salt of the earth in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, he said, if the salt loses its savor, it is from then on good for nothing. So the term good for nothing comes from the Bible. It is possible for a person to be good for nothing. Like, what if I really have been good for nothing in my society? I have not contributed to anything. And that is possible. What if I really have been a perfect fool? What if I really have been just so incredibly foolish I can't stand it? And in the book of Proverbs, chapter 14, verse 7, it says, go from the presence of a foolish man. Get away from him. Well, what if I have been that foolish man? Or what if the people I care about most in the world really would have been better off if I had never been born? I mean, in a worst case scenario, Hitler. I mean, it would have really been better for so many people if he had never been born. Like, what if this is a reality? This text is speaking to that. What if satanic and human accusers do bring up my most humiliating failures, either publicly or in the courts of heaven. Romans 8.31. What if he does? What if the accuser does? Well, if God is for us, who can be against us? We have accusations. But if God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God who justifies. So, as we were talking in Romans 6, your sins, which are myriad and grave, are in your account. Jesus' righteousness, which is infinite, is now also in your account as a believer. Your accounts are merged. And though your sins were dark and many, they were not infinite. But Jesus' righteousness is infinite. And so when your accounts merge, you have his perfect righteousness completely overflowing and overwhelming all of your sins. If God is for you, who can be against you? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elected is God who justifies. God is looking at your account and he says, I see that. And what I see in his account is infinite righteousness. It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Accusers abound. It is Christ who died. Father, put my infinite righteousness in his account. It's Christ who died, more than that, who has risen again, who's even at the right hand of God, and he makes intercession for us. What if all the accusers in the world decided to make public our most humiliating moments? If God is for us, if Christ has died, if our accounts are merged, if there is infinite righteousness now in our heavenly account, 
the accusations mean nothing at all. One lady says she had been a perfect fool. When I gave birth to Molly in November 2001, I could have never imagined how things would turn out. I remember feeling cushioned by so much love and happiness. And yet within four short years, I had been relegated from omnipresent, devoted mother to a mere walk-on part in Molly's life. How had we reached such a sorry state of affairs? We'd married on a summer day in July. One love, two hearts, he had engraved on my wedding ring. But when Molly was two, it was me who ended our four-year marriage. In December 2005, after a bitter year-long custody battle, a judge decided my fate. Molly was three. She still sucked her thumb. How could someone so young cope with seeing her mother so infrequently? At the back of the courtroom, I sat in paralyzed shock until the judge said, as if speaking to someone with severe learning difficulties, you can go now. I left with tears streaming down my face. One of the hardest moments was phoning my daughter after the court's decision had been made. Her sweet, trusting voice sliced through me. I love you. When will I see your face, Mommy? How do you explain to a three-year-old that she will see her mommy's face for two days every two weeks? Blinded by a sense of unreality, I climbed into bed, pulled the duvet over my head, and howled for my baby. Each time Molly moves from one parent to another... She suffers waves of anxiety and cries for the one she's leaving. I have a hole in my tummy, she says as tears roll down her cheeks. I want you and Daddy to live together. I can't bear it. We are caught in a groundhog day where circumstances have condemned us to reenact our eternal separation. With hindsight, if I knew the emotional consequences on our family, especially my daughter... That knowledge may have paralyzed me from taking the action I did when I broke up our family. So what if you really have been a perfect fool and you know it? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God who justifies. It is Christ who died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. I know. We've all been foolish. And we have all sometimes been perfect fools. And yet, there is nothing present and there is nothing to come that will ever separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What if the people I care about really would have? I mean, not just saying that. They really would have been better off if I had never been born. In January 1994... Kim went to her best friend to confide in her about the distance she was feeling from William in her marriage. The friend gutted her when she admitted that she had been having an affair with William. William said, I was 38 years old and my sixth child was born. It was a sick affair in a real demonic sense in that I thought God was approving. I thought that God was behind the affair. I thought that Kim was going to die. I had gone out and bought new wedding rings. Kim called me on the phone. I'm at a restaurant in Portland. And she said, I know, and I'm waiting for you at your office. She caught me, so I called the other woman, and she said, run away with me. And I said, no. Over the course of several days, William told Kim the whole story after each confession, saying, that's all, and then confessing more again later. Kim said, I will not believe another word that comes out of your mouth for the rest of my life. 
when I really looked at all this crap, I lost all my hope. It was gone. And I'm thinking my children would be better if I didn't live. The whole world would be. Externals, performances, and lies all ended. William wrote letters to everybody who knew him and said, I've been living a lie. He went through many days, and here's how he describes it. Living with an underlying volume of shame so deep and loud that it constantly threatened any sense of sanity, of dreams not only destroyed but obliterated by personal failure, of hope so tenuous that only suicide seemed to offer a solution. I mean, what if you come to the place in your life where you can honestly say, honestly say, it would have been better for everybody I love if I had never been born? That's a hard place to come to in life. And I hope you never come to such a place. But even if you did, even if you did, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died. In fact, is risen again. Is setting at the right hand of God. Also making intercession for him. Even then. Amazing. I am persuaded, persuaded, that nothing can shake this. You might say, how can it not be appropriate for me to wonder if my accusers aren't right, if my repentance has been too superficial, my good deeds too few, my purpose in life too half-hearted? I mean, what if they're all right? What if the accusations are totally right? The answer, I am persuaded that neither death, we will die being loved in Christ. Neither death nor life, we will live every day as rotten and foolish as we are. We will live every day in the love of God. I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, principalities and powers, no demonic princes who accuse us constantly will either be able to abduct us away from God or poison God's mind toward us. Neither angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, none of the sin and ugliness that's in my life right now, nor things to come, none of the sin and ugliness that will taint my life tomorrow, nor height, my spatial distance from God who's so far away, nor depth, God's spatial distance from me so far away, nor any other creature, human or demonic, of various kinds, will ever be able to separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Unbelievable. Our conclusion, which is a little long today, so bear with me. On the worst day of your life, on the worst days of your life, your very sanity may depend on you acknowledging these two great truths that we've talked about today, that all things really do work together for good, inexpressible, unimaginable good for all saved people everywhere. That's the end of your story. And there's even a special goodness for those who love the Lord with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second great truth that might save your sanity, not only that this is going to work out for a happy ending, but also this, 
that the eternal love of God in Christ is an unbreakable knot, an unbreakable braid from eternity past to eternity future that can never be severed, even if you are very, very foolish and very, very ugly today or tomorrow. I will close with my story of Abigail. All things work together for good, sometimes in the most uncanny ways. Abigail was doing her chores, and she wanted to catch a streetcar. This is New York in 1900. She wants to catch a streetcar, and she took too long doing her chores, which was a good deed for somebody else, actually, and she missed her streetcar. Now she has to wait for the next one to come along. The next one does indeed come along. There's a streetcar conductor, and Abigail always likes to be a witness wherever she can. She's next to the conductor, and she gives him a little gospel leaflet, and the gospel leaflet has a title. The title says, Where is Hell Located? And then the answer, At the End of a Christless Life. The conductor says, You always give me these little papers. I suppose you must think me a very wicked fellow, but I am as good as they make them. There's plenty of time for me to think about these things. I'm still young. And she says, well, you never know when you might die. And I wish you would think about them. And that was the end of their conversation. Well, next day, Abigail gets on the streetcar again like she usually does. And somebody says, oh, uh, because she hands them the little gospel tract. He says, oh, are you the one that talked to the conductor yesterday about this? She says, yes, I am. He says, I'm sorry to tell you that conductor was stepping off one streetcar onto another and he fell and the wheels ran over him and he died. He died at 745 this morning. But just before he died, he said, tell that lady, tell her I am not going to a Christless grave. I have accepted the Savior she told me of. Well, Abigail is delighted. I mean, this is such wonderful news. Remember, all of this is possible because she took too long doing her chores and had to catch the next streetcar. Well, she was so happy with all this that she wrote the story in a little four-page leaflet, and she went everywhere handing out that leaflet. One day, she's on the streetcar again, and she's next to a Catholic priest, And she says, can I give you this? And she is giving him the story of the streetcar conductor who became a Christian. And the priest says, well, I don't think that you should be so confident that anybody knows they are not going to go to a Christless grave. That's not our Catholic doctrine. And she says, well, I don't want you to think that it's my doctrine. And she quoted for him 2 Timothy 1.12, which says, I know whom I have believed in. And I am persuaded, persuaded that he's able to keep what I've committed to him until that day. I'm persuaded. And she said, and this little leaflet about the conductor happened right here where we live. And the priest was interested, but that's all. Two years later, uh, Abigail is visiting at the Catholic hospital in New York, uh, a friend, and there's a nun there. And she hands the little leaflet about the conductor to the nun. And the nun says, oh, can I talk to you? Turns out the nun is the biological sister to the priest who was on the train car not so long ago, two years ago. And that priest 
has pneumonia, uh, tuberculosis. And so the nun says, my brother would like very much to see you. He talks about you all the time. So Abigail goes to the priest who has tuberculosis uh, with the nun, sister to the priest. And he says, I'm dying. But I want you to know. Now I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded, persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him until that day. And when he died, he turned away all the other Catholic clergy and he wanted to hold Abigail's hand at the end of his life. Well, now the priest's sister is watching all of this unfold. And she becomes a Christian. And she says, I just don't know what I'm going to do because I can't give up the Catholic Church. I have no living. And yet she was very brave and she did renounce her vows to the Catholic Church. And she had to go back to Europe and live with her family there because she had no money, no living. So the priest's sister became a Christian. Sometime later, Abigail is getting on the train car, as she always does, the streetcar. And uh, there is a disabled man. He kind of stumbles stepping into the car. And he says, uh, thank you, because she kind of helps him. And he says, this is a pretty sight, isn't it? My condition. And she says, well, we know that if you love Jesus, someday you'll get a resurrection body and everything will just be fine. She had a little New Testament and she stuck the story of the streetcar conductor in the New Testament and handed it to him, uh, opened at 1 Corinthians 15. And he wasn't much impressed with that conversation. And so she went her way. Now, one year later, a letter comes in the mailbox. This is from the disabled man's brother and mother. The disabled man says, you met my brother on the streetcar some time back. And he said the look in your eye was just so loving. And he went and he read the little story about the streetcar conductor. And he died not too long ago. And he asked if we would write to the address on the back of your little leaflet and tell you that he's not going to a Christless grave. He knows who he has believed in. And so the brother says, and not only that, but my mother and I have also now become persuaded. Then uh, there's a knock at her door one day, and there's a Catholic priest from Europe. He says, do you know a priest and a nun who not so long ago was in your acquaintance, and they received a leaflet about a Streetcar conductor from you? He says, yes, I know them very well. He said, I just want you to know that that was my brother and my sister. And when my sister came to Europe, she told me all about you. And my sister recently died. But I want you to know that she died talking about her knowledge that she would not go to a Christless grave. And I just want you to know, I also believe that. And I don't have the courage to leave the Catholic Church, but I'm a believer too. Well, Abigail had to visit one of her friends, and there was a short ferry ride going back and forth, and she went often. And um, I don't know, the thought came to her mind, I have a bottle in my hand, I have the story of the streetcar conductor right here, I could put this in the bottle and throw it in the water, which thing she did. Well, there it sits in the water for a very long time, very long time. One day there's a knock at her door. 
man outside says, uh, you don't know me, but I saw your address on the back of a little leaflet uh, about the streetcar conductor. And I wanted to tell you that a few days ago, uh, my business was lost. I was a wealthy man, and I was speculating, and I lost it all. I was in despair. And I got in my rowboat, and I rowed out onto the lake, and I was just going to drown myself out of sight of everybody so it wouldn't upset my friends. And as I'm rowing along, I see a bottle floating. And I just can't help myself. I'm curious. And so I went over to the bottle, and I saw that there was a message in the bottle. And I opened it, and it was about a streetcar conductor. And it said, I'm not going to a Christless grave. Are you? He said, you couldn't imagine the effect that had on me in that moment. And so I didn't take my life. I've given my heart to Jesus. And I just want you to know, I'm not going to a Christless grave. And so all of this, because Abigail missed her streetcar. And Romans 8.28 says, we know that all these things work together for good to them that love God to them who are the called according to his purpose. Someday, your sanity might depend on your recognition that all these things are going to end up with a bright, happy future if you're a believer. And there is nothing you can do today or tomorrow that will ever separate you from that. Can we stand and be dismissed with prayer? Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these realities, uh, for, for the incredible super intelligence that makes it possible for all these things to come together for our happy ending. And not only the super intelligence, but the super love that would make us so knotted together with your son that there is no way that we could ever cease to be loved by you. This is what gives us hope on the worst days of our life, and today too. We thank you for it all in Jesus' name. Amen.